and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 86. I'm really glad to have a, a great guest with me today who is the author of a new book called The Country of the Blind. And we're going to get into all of the uh, tech-related and non-tech-related aspects of that book. Well, not all of them, but a fair number of them. Uh, Andrew Leland is a writer, editor, radio producer, and podcaster. His memoir, The Country of the Blind, is about his gradual loss of vision. And uh, he's earned reviews in The New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, The New Yorker, and a lot more. Andrew Leland, it's really great to have you on Parallel. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Shelley. I'm super happy to be here. Well, I guess let's get the, the basics out of the way. You have retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, which is a disease that will gradually take your vision over the course of the years. Is there anything, just as an overview, that you want folks to understand about your, your vision, I guess, at, at the current point, or what, what you expect to happen in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... I ask my, my eye doctor that question every time I see her, you know, every two years or so, and she often dodges the question... Um, you know, so I don't know exactly what the timeline will be, but, you know, I have about 6% of my visual field, the way RP tends to work and it's, you know, it's different for different people. And a friend of mine called RP a junk diagnosis the other day, which I really loved because <laughs> it is really like a catch all for any sort of inherited retinal disease that hap that generally goes from the outside in, you know, so your central vision, uh, is sort of the last, last part to go. And, uh, it starts as night blindness or peripheral vision loss. Um, but so I think what I can expect is is a continued gradual narrowing of my visual field over the course of probably the next 10 or 20 years, although with a big caveat that at a certain point, the eye just starts to get really messed up. And even though the rate of acceleration isn't supposed to increase that quickly, I think with a lot of people, it does just because it's like, you know, it's kind of like the water going down the drain at a certain point. It just like all gets sucked in, <laughs> right? Is how I'm imagining. So like it. it can be kind of unpredictable too. I mean, it's not like a definitely a, you know a scale that's you know linear, right? So your book is a memoir about coming to terms with your impending blindness and how you discovered it and all the sort of personal things that affect your life. But you also include a lot of history and even yeah. technology and ideas and, and philosophy in there. I guess I'm wondering how you decided on the scope of this book when you were thinking about, hey, I want to write a blindness memoir. Um, well, I had read a number of blindness memoirs and I loved a lot of blindness memoirs, you know, there's, there's some bad ones out there too. And by bad, I mean, uh, I guess badly written, but also just sort <laughs> of like maudlin and, and sort of inspirational. And, you know, like that, that's sort of, I think there's a place for that, but I think for me, I really, that's not what I was looking for. And so, so in some ways I wrote the book that I wanted to read for myself, which didn't skimp on the sort of emotional and personal parts of, of the experience of vision loss, but that didn't, didn't, stay in that space. And that really, really was like a reflection of what I, what I wanted, which was to understand emotionally, but also really understand in, in, in these other domains, like understand sort of practically and historically and sociologically and, you know, technologically, like what is this world that I'm entering? What is the country of the blind? And so as a result, you know, there, there, there are all these memoiristic parts where I'm talking about my family and I'm talking about my, my, my life, but then in every case, I try to use those those experiences as springboards into thinking about questions around, you know, where what is the, where did screen readers come from? Actually, that's one that I didn't go into. Somebody, a, 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 
somebody was like, why didn't you write the history of screen readers? You know, which is like the book, if I, if the book was in seven volumes, you know, then I could have, I could have included all of these great histories, but you know, there is a history of Braille in there and, um, you know, histories of different blindness organizations and, and really just trying to understand the world that I'm entering as I'm entering it. Well, for anybody who wants one, The Verge did a really good history of screeners story a year and a half ago or so. I was really oh. impressed that they did it. And I was like, wait, what? The Verge? Seriously? They did a whole week of disability coverage, but that was the standout. It was really good. Awesome. I'll have to look that up. I've read a, lot, a few of the blindness memoirs out there, and I, I confess that I haven't read more because of that fear of just being sort of maudlin and inspirational yeah. or content free. Like even if somebody wasn't mm. inspirational, it was like... They were, okay, what do I, what do I say about blindness? And I think you have the advantage of, I mean, you're a writer. You, you come from a background of knowing how to put ideas together. And I, I mean, do you feel like that was essential to what you were able to do in the book that you had had this, had the previous background as somebody who's, you know, trying to get ideas over? Maybe. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say that I think for anybody listening to this, who's not a writer, you know, I think, I think there's no, um, I think, I think the world tries to give you the sense that you need various uh, degrees or credentials to be a writer. Like you need to have an association, you know, you need a press pass, you need an MFA, you know, and I think at heart, what one of the things I love about writing and literature is that you need none of that. You just need a mind that's curious and, and, and the discipline and the resources to like, you know, hammer out the craft of it. So I'm definitely at an advantage having a background in publishing and, and, and editing and writing, you know, and understanding reporting and research in those ways. It's, it, I'm not going to tell you it didn't help me, but uh, I just also think for anybody listening to this, like I urge people to, to write. And I think for me, like the, the advantage that came from it was in part that I had read a lot of personal narratives as an editor of a literary magazine that published personal essays. And I just had a really strong sense that I didn't want the book to only be a personal narrative in part because I didn't feel like anything particularly interesting had happened to me. You know, it's like man loses 94% of his visual field. Like there's some interesting parts to that, but like it wasn't even, even, I feel like I had even less interesting stuff to write about than the people who had like lost all their vision, you know, where it's like really like, okay, now I'm going to really have to figure out my O&M skills. You know, I'm still like able to see like some stuff getting around, which makes it, I, as I've talked to people who've lost all their vision, it's like, you know, it's easier. So like, to me, in some ways, it was like a literary problem of like, okay, I don't think I'm all that interesting to sustain an entire book, but you know what is interesting is like all these other people and all these. So that so that was I think that was part of it was 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 really the desire to marry reporting and criticism and history to my personal story. I'll say that the the thing that's interesting about your personal story is that you don't feel like you have to. It seems to me stick to a narrative that says, "Okay, this is how I feel about blindness." You're ebbing and flowing. Sometimes you're in your mm. feelings. Sometimes you're fairly analytical about it. And I, you know, that's kind of like vision loss itself, right? Especially if it's continuing, you're going to feel different ways on different days. What What's the expression you use? I'm feeling particularly blind today. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that felt really important to me because I think, yeah, I mean, that, like talking to blind people and going through my own experience of it. I think that's a pretty common experience. Like nobody, I think, I don't think any blind people feel blind all day long every day. Right. Like the same way that like, I don't feel like a man, like, you know, certainly I'm a man all day, every day, but like, it's not like I'm constantly walking around being like, as a man, I'm going to have a cup of water now. Right. Like as a blind person, it's time for me to send an email. Like it's really only when in usually social contexts, these things are set into relief. 
and that's interesting because, you know, I don't, I feel bl- more blinded sometimes than others. Sometimes that has to do with the fact that we're asked questions, like we're supposed to account for ourselves. How do you do this? Or, you know, what's, what's your process? Or tell me about your white cane or, or whatever it is. I, I just, I wonder, I, I guess in either inside or outside of the context of, of the book, I mean, did you, did you feel that way, weighs heavy on you? The idea that you have to explain blindness to people in either in a social situation or like on a street corner when you're not you're not sitting down at your computer writing in in ways that you feel uh, express it in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean I think it's funny like there are certainly times when I'm out in the world and I don't want blindness to be a part of my identity necessarily and I'm just like trying to get a cup of coffee and I don't want to talk about you know yeah the cane or how much vision I have or how I how I do things in my life. I think that for me and the place I am in my life, and certainly the place I was during the years I was writing this book, that feeling was overshadowed a bit by the feeling of wanting to explain to people what I was going through, in part to explain to myself, because it just felt so new and confusing, and other people seemed confused, and I felt confused. And I can see that more happening after I've kind of been through it, like in five years when I'm like more blind and more comfortable with sort of like the basics of what I have to do as a blind person, then I think it's, you know, talking to people who've been blind their whole lives who are really just like, dude, I'm trying to walk to work. Like, do not give me directions. I don't need any interactions with you right now. You know, I, I appreciate that. That's not as much my experience day to day. Cause for me, it was much more like, I can see all these people looking at me funny with my cane. I wish I could just hand them a book that says like, <laughs> you know, in, in 300 succinct pages, like everything that I am feeling and thinking and, and all the cultural context of that. So in a way, like, obviously I'm not walking around with a satchel of this book or to hand out, but it was a sort of like memo to the world of like what this experience is like in part for myself, but also because I felt like the world needed that kind of explanation. It feels like when you have some vision, whether you call it legally blind or whether it's just you're, you're a guy with a cane or dark glasses or mm-hmm. however you present, you've got another layer of explanation. People know what blindness is, but they don't know yeah. what high partial means or visually impaired right. or whatever term. Yeah, low vision. Yeah, low vision. Is, is that, does that weigh on you? I mean, are, do you, have you sort of come to terms? Do you have a pattern that you go through with people or do you <laughs> care to do that? Because there are a lot of times when I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> When you won't do what? When I won't like say, you know, sort of explain myself. This is what caused my blindness. This is how long Mm. I've had it. This is what I can and can't do. Because you get that question a lot, right? What can you, how much can you see? And what is, and even if you gave a technical answer, whether it was your visual acuity or what your, your field uh, was, what would Mm -hmm. that mean to the observer? Right. Yeah. No, it very rarely means anything. And even if you do say it, then they're like, okay, but so are the stairs okay? You know, and like they don't have a sense of like what that actually means. And I'm like, yes, the stairs are fine. Like there's nothing preventing me from holding a handrail and taking one step in front of the other. But like, you know, that's not, uh, every person is different. So, but yeah, to answer your question, the ambiguity of being low vision uh, is constantly on my mind and was really in some ways the entry point to this book for me because I hit a point in my life where I was, pretty convinced that I needed to start using my cane wherever I went in public, even while I could still see a whole lot. And just cause I was like, I had hip checked enough toddlers, you know, and like kicked enough dogs and like <laughs> almost sprained my ankle on enough curbs and like almost like done cartwheels over fire hydrants. And I was just like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm going to injure someone else or myself. I got to do this. But then of course, like suddenly the whole world is in my mind looking at me like I'm a fraud and, you know, in some special cases, people actually did accuse me of faking it, which is, I think is a 
sad, sadly common experience for, for blind people, even people with, with no vision. I was fascinated by that because I had the similar experience. I think a lot of low vision people do, whether they acquire blindness or whether they acquire a cane and decide they need to use it. And mm-hmm. your your perspective and what you wrote about was feeling like you were presenting as a fraud to the outside world. My perspective is I'm putting a, na- a flashing neon sign that says, look at me, I'm the blind person. And that's not who I want to be in the world. I want to be the, the yeah. person walking by that you don't necessarily notice. Did, did, right. Was that your experience too or at all or no? Oh, totally. Yeah. You're totally stripped of anonymity. You can't just be a pedestrian. You're like a problem to be managed. You're a spectacle. Uh, and it's it's upsetting. You know, I mean, I think there is like a, I think I, I didn't realize how much I took for granted that feeling of, it's really like a privilege of anonymity. And I think other people with sort of stigmatized identities, whether you want to call it, you know, like the, like a, a person of color walking through a white neighborhood, you know, it's a very different set of considerations than a blind person. But, but I think there's like a similar dynamic there where like you are outside the mainstream, you're not normal and you get treated differently. And there's, there's real pain in that. I mean, just an aside on on that point, you you talk in the book about the differences, though, about if you're a person of color, often the reaction is negative, it's angry, it's threatening, whereas for a person who's got a disability, sometimes it's about pity or condescension. Neither of those are good things to happen, but if you're a person with a disability, maybe you're a little more safe unless somebody, you know, has criminal intent against you, but... Uh, you know, the, the difference between being having a disability that's pre- that's evident and having a, a dark skin in an area where that's not tolerated. I, I was fascinated by by that perspective, which makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I talked to Anil Lewis from the NFB about this, and, and he was telling me that, you know, he's like a, he was describing himself as like a big guy. And people, when he was cited, used to look at him, as he put it, like as a super predator, right? That's like the cliche, the sort of racist cliche of like the black man as like a, you know, a, a, a threatening figure. And and then once he became blind, suddenly like there was a, a an elderly woman offering to help him across the street, you know? And he was like, if I didn't have that white cane, there's no way she would have been standing on that corner to help me. And it is this sort of inversion. And And he surprised me by saying that, you know, even though it was painful to be seen as as like a predator, as, as a threat in some ways that sort of like that sort of pity that's masquerading as compassion felt more painful to him in some ways. I mean, that makes sense. And, and you, you talk also in the book about from, from a male perspective about the emasculating nature of depending on mm-hmm. others. And I'll tell you, I, there are plenty of women who don't want to depend on others either. It may not have mm. the same freighted baggage that uh, masculinity gives to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's what I thought about too when I was reading that anecdote from your book that, yeah, now this person has the the kindness of an older, of a person helping him, but at the same time, he's kind of, whether you want to call it emasculated or he's made lesser by that experience. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is a tech podcast, so let's switch for a little bit and talk about technology. You you point out some things in the book uh, about how there are certain mainstream technologies that have evolved out of disability tech or the long history of disability tech that I don't think people know about. And instead of just throwing it open and saying, so tell me about one of those, (laughs) the one that I was surprised the most by, and because a lot of people listen to this podcast or Apple folks might appreciate it, was the whole phone freak connection in the 70s. And of course, that's how Jobs and Wozniak got started before Apple, uh, you know, making blue boxes. So, So what's the phone freak connection for blind folks? Okay, so in the '70s, back when you know Ma Bell, uh, there was the national phone system that was sort of you know pre-cell phones, right? Uh, and and you know you would you would use the sort of old um, 
dial, dial, you know, these still exist. I'm talking about it as though like there's no phone system anymore. Of course, this is still around. Um, but, but of course, because, you know, everybody does have cell phones, it, it feels like a relic. Um, but, but people discovered that you could basically hack your way into the back end of this phone system using, you know, the, the sort of famous, there was actually like a, a zine with the name 2600, which was named for the tone that basically unlocked, you know, and, and, and I know you have listeners who are going to just like run circles around me and in, in, in the technical knowledge of this. Like if you start asking me like what a trunk line is or the actual, I, I don't know how hip you are to this stuff, but I have a pretty, I won't be correcting uh, you. I'll, I'll leave that okay, to the good. feedback emails later <laughs> on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I'll try not to like, you know, say anything too detailed at the risk of, of, of getting it wrong. Uh, Cause I know like listening to other blind tech podcasts too, that there are like a lot of blind podcast techie uh, listeners out there who, who know this stuff backwards and forwards. But basically you had people figuring out how to hack into the phone system. And like, there were these party lines where you could basically like, you know, you could make free long distance phone calls. You could go hang out and basically like pre-internet chat rooms, essentially, where, you know, you would find an unused 800 number um, and, and basically like loop from circuit to circuit and then find your way into these these rooms where people would hang out. And and the point is that like the people who were doing this, which who called themselves phone freaks with a, with a PH, uh, freaks with a PH, um, you know, these were people who liked playing with phones. And, you know, what do you know, in the 70s, like one overrepresented demographic in that group of like really the original hackers were blind, blind folks because a lot of blind kids were sort of like home, hanging out. You know, what are they going to do? They're playing with their phones. And uh, so there's some pretty legendary figures in this scene. And it's super influential. It really is. If you read histories of of Silicon Valley, histories of hacker culture, like the phone freaks was the beginning of that movement, like really like predating the Internet, predating um predating, as you mentioned, Apple computer, like there's a famous Steve Jobs quote, if there hadn't been for little blue boxes, uh, there wouldn't have been any Apple. Cause like he and Steve Wozniak who founded Apple, their first sort of collaboration was in their garage building these devices that were really just built out of components you could find at Radio Shack. And some of the early um, innovators of little blue boxes were these blind phone freaks. And, and, and also I think it's like the, the, you know, I mean, I think a lot of your listeners will be familiar with clubhouse during the pandemic, right. Where sort of like blind people could come and oh, hang yeah. out and, or, or certainly like before, there was another app that uh, you might know the name of, but it was before clubhouse Vorail. Was that what it was called? I know what you're talking There's, there was two of them. One was, I, I can't remember. They were sort of specific, more specifically aimed at blind folks than clubhouse was, but clubhouse yeah. served the same function where people could communicate exclusively in audio just through their phone, but it was yes. a social networking app. You know, and this is like really great history that I only really scratched the surface of, but there was a magazine, I kind of want to say it was called Talkback or something like that, but it was like a, on a cassette, but it was basically another way for like blind folks to, to, to chat with each other. Um, and, and I think that these, these party lines, these rooms that people would meet up in were really important early uh, community gathering spaces for blind people, for blind culture. But unlike the Wozniaks and Jobs of the world, the blind phone freaks didn't end up inventing Silicon Valley startups, did they? They unfortunately kind of faded into obscurity after that era. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of a heartbreaking subtext of, there's a really, really good book that I got, I would say like a hundred percent of my uh, information about phone freaks from called Exploding the Phone by Philip Lapsley. Uh, that is on Bard uh, for those listeners who are blind, um, but it's also yeah. in on Amazon or in, you know, whatever, wherever fine books are sold for, uh, sighted readers. But, um, 
but yeah, he, he, you know, there, there is a little bit of a, that book does a really good job of telling the story, not just of the blind phone freaks, but of the kind of movement as a whole. But it's true. Like you read it and it's like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak went on to like, you know, wildly lucrative and successful careers in tech and like all, to a person, all the blind folks in that scene, like, you know, some of them ended up on the wrong side of the law. Some of them like really petitioned, you know, because it was illegal what they were doing. Um, you know, all the sighted folks were able to sort of parlay that like, well, haha, like it's illegal, but we weren't doing it to like actually make money off of free phone calls. We were doing it because we were like hackers and now we're innovators. But the blind folks, I, I think, really did get left behind. And that's a story that you see really throughout the history of tech where it's like whether it's, you know, the phone freaks being hackers or like the, you know, the blind sales force that Kurzweil reading systems hired, you know, the once it was acquired by Xerox, like they all get laid off. Um, and, and, you know, once it moves to the mainstream, the blind folks do, do get left behind. Well, and I mean, even in, in the modern day, I don't think you get quite to this in the book, but there are all these assistive technology companies that are staffed by blind folks, but then they merge. And so those blind folks get laid off, whether it's sales or tech support, because, you know, one company owns what used to be four or five companies. So unfortunately, that, that seems to happen a lot when you're dealing with something that has specific interest to, to blind folks, because it when it moves on to the mainstream, then other people are interested in, and they take those those jobs, it seems. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I talk a little bit about this with with two folks I interview in the book. One of them is Aaron Lordson, uh, who at the time was working for this lighthouse uh, in San Francisco. Now she works. Um, now she's doing accessibility for a Fortune 500 company. And um, and Josh Mealy, who at the time. Oh, actually, when I interviewed him, he was working at Amazon. He had just moved to Amazon from Smith Kettlewell. And both of them address this question that kept on coming up for me as I was researching sort of the intersection between tech and blindness, which is the question of like, do you work in accessibility or do you try to get a job sort of in, in, in the mainstream world? And like, what is at stake in that move? And is it a compromise to work in accessibility? And, uh, and one thing that Josh said to me that I found really interesting was, you know, he, he, when he was in college, he went to Berkeley and was like, you know, working under Bill Gary at Smith Kettlewell, who's another like brilliant blind engineer, learning how to like build his own accessible voltometers. And, um, and then he really wanted to work at NASA and he, I think he got an internship at NASA and he just came back like, I cannot deal with a bureaucracy like this. Um, and then he realized like there are plenty of people who could be space scientists, but like, who are the people who are going to build accessible voltmeters, right? And who are the people who are going to build screen readers that actually work well? And, and so he kind of made this decision that really, it didn't sound like a compromise to me the way he said it. And I, I think if you look at his career, it doesn't feel like a compromised career to me. It really feels like, okay, sure. Like being working at NASA sounds really fun. Uh, but like where, where am I needed? And, and blind people, for better or worse, like there's nobody else who's going to build those tools for us except for us. Yeah. And I, I think listeners to this show will have heard me talk about how I sort of pivoted from writing mainstream tech books to an accessibility book. And that's not all I do, but it's one of the things. And I was as surprised as anyone to find myself doing it, but it was like, well, nobody's mm -hmm. done it. So I might as well. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, I remember I tweeted at you one time where I was like, who is the David Kingsbury of Mac OS? <laughs> like, is there anybody who's going to like tell me actually how to use voiceover for Mac? Because like I was at the time, you know, I'm a lifelong Mac user. My dad like gave me his old Mac 512K in like 1986 or something. I've been using it since I was a kid and I never ever thought I would switch to Windows. But like as I, my vision started to change and it started to continue to change as I was writing this book, I was like, oh God, I really can't finish this book without 
using a screen reader all the time. I just had to sort of bite the bullet. And then I was like, whoa, uh, voiceover on Mac OS is not doing it for me. Right. And, and, but I was just looking for those resources, like, you know, like David Kingsbury, like your work on, on iOS or like Kingsbury's windows screen reader primer. And I was like, where's the Mac screen reader primer? And it just, I mean, you know, they has documentation, the voiceover has documentation, but it's just, it's not the same. It's the question I get most often, when are you going to write about voiceover for Mac? And I always say when Apple makes it better. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I mean, that's, huh. it's, it's kind of, it, I just, well, I, I don't use it hundred percent of the time. I, I don't use it nearly as much as I use for, use it for iOS. And I, I know a lot of people who are full-time voiceover users. We talk about that here on the show and on the Mac system mm-hmm. roundtable and all that. But, uh, I think it has it is a commitment for some people to to use voiceover uh, on the Mac, and uh, I hate to see anybody go back to Windows, but it, but it does happen. Um, and I had forgotten I read this in the book because I know Josh, and I I forgotten he had worked at Berkeley Systems. I was like, oh yeah. wow, okay, Berkeley Systems back in the '90s, which did a, a screen reader, did, also did famously After Dark the Flying Toasters. Uh, flying Toasters, <laughs> I don't absolutely. Know if Josh was very important. In that, but, oh, those toasters! Yeah. I remember, I was at Mac User Magazine, and we got this great demo <laughs> where they turned the lights down and they showed us flying toasters. It was the most fun demo we'd had in a long time. That's awesome. And also just so wild to just look back from where we are now in tech to think that like people could be exciting about a flying toasters screensaver. Um, but so we were. Yes. So we were. Well, so what's your relationship with assistive tech? I mean, are you an enthusiast or is it kind of a necessary evil in your life? No, I mean, like I suggested from my dad giving me that 512k, um, Mac back in, you know, 1986 or whatever. Uh, I've always been into tech and media, particularly like desktop publishing, you know, my dad is, that's his, he's like in his mid seventies now and he's still like geeking out about mid journey and AI and, you know, TikTok and, and things like that. And so it's definitely in my blood to be, you know, and, and it's interesting, like a lot of the blind culture stuff just around, like, you know, like we were talking about the sort of contemporary version of that, whether it's clubhouse or, you know, this, you know, now I would say like Mastodon or uh, all the different places that blind people congregate online and talk about tech to me, it feels very much in line with like what I saw my dad doing, like a, like Berkeley Macintosh user group listservs and just like the kind of fun, geeky, smart, like kind of creative scene of people helping each other, just throwing stuff at the wall. You know, it's not all just about like corporate workers trying to like, you know, be as productive as they can, but it's about like playing with these tools and, and, and having fun with them and making art with them sometimes. And so that's been, you know, and I had this revelation actually when I was, I know you, um, sometimes collaborate with Jonathan Mosin and, you know, when I was doing research for the book and really trying to understand like blind culture and like, is there a blind culture? You know, I found his podcast and I was like, okay, like this guy is asking these questions. Like is, you know, it's questions about Braille questions about, you know, blind identity about language. And I was like, okay, here is like a really vital, community of people having these conversations. And then I would listen to the podcast and it would be like 20 minutes about, you know, the one password apps functionality with NVDA versus JAWS. And I was just like, (laughs) why is there 20 minutes of like, you know, like keyboard shortcuts or like, you know, patch push notifications when what I'm here for is like, you know, blind identity. And then over time I realized like, oh wait, no, that is blind culture. Like the sort of like, you know, community conversation about you know, NVDA, uh, or jaws or whatever it is, that's, that is blind culture. And that, that, that's just as vital to this community as like the question of, yeah, capital B braille or, you know, blind do, do 
do you say you're blind or a person with visual impairment or all those other kind of more cultural questions? Yeah, and I, I don't do that kind of in-depth stuff here, but part of the remit of Parallel initially was that you had tech bloggers and podcasters and people who would get into the deep nitty gritty of how a certain thing worked. And if that stuff existed in the blindness world, it never intersected with the mainstream world. So so blind people mm. trade articles from The Verge and Ars Technica and Engadget and all that stuff. But there's never or hasn't been as much acknowledgement of, hey, there's this parallel universe of accessibility mm. stuff going on. And instead of doing a fully blindness podcast, my idea was, how do you bring those worlds together? Unfortunately, it's really hard to book that many guests. <laughs> That's sometimes the challenge is like <laughs> finding people who are sort of at the same level in, in time and space. The, yeah. I, we, I used to do that more than I, I do. Hello, audience. Uh, if you're missing those shows, it's because uh, sometimes it's just a challenge of, uh, you know, booking people who have literal parallel knowledge and interests, uh, you know. But uh, we we do we do make the attempt. So you so assistive technology has become, I am assuming, more of a part of your life. Whether it's physical, actual assistive specific technology, or whether it's things like a screen reader on a phone or on a on a computer, do you have the same feeling about your interaction with assistive tech as you? do with have with tech generally or is it is, is more of a pain is it more interesting what's what's your feeling about it oh i have a whole bucket of feelings about <laughs> it um i mean one thing another person i talked to who's been really important to me just in my sort of evolving knowledge and, and feelings about assistive tech is chancy fleet at new york public library and you know i think she made it really clear to me at one point whether i don't know where where i read her saying this or heard her maybe she said it to me but like it is at its heart going to be a second class experience. Not that, not that it should be, but that like one of the things you have to sort of accept, I think, or not, I don't even think she's, I don't want to paraphrase her, but like one thing I took away from her example and her thinking is that like, yeah, like generally speaking, the assistive tech experience is going to be subordinate to the mainstream experience. And that is not a good state of affairs and it's, it shouldn't be that way. But I think I had to kind of wrap my head around that because when I'm trying to learn this stuff, I'm like, huh, that doesn't work. It must be because I'm not good at it. Right. Cause I haven't figured it out yet. And then enough times I'm like, wait, maybe it doesn't work. Cause it's like, you know, <laughs> not built very well, or right. it's not working right. Or like, there's like an update that, that just happened that broke it. And like, you know, now I've been using a screen reader for a couple of years and I've like got a little bit more of a, whatever you want to call it, like an institutional memory or whatever, where I can be like, okay, this used to work and now it doesn't. And I, I have a little bit better of a sense of like, what's my fault and what's the computer's fault. But that's such a beguiling part of accessibility that I'm just beginning to wrap my head around, which is this idea that like the, even people who are, you know, at like Josh Mealy level of accessibility wizardry, I think still encounter that question of like, is this my fault? Is this something that has to do with my tech or is it the accessibility? Is it, you know, where's the bug? And I think in some ways that's just like tech period, right? It's like, okay, I've got four different layers here. I've got like this app, I've got the the operating system, I've got this piece of hardware, I've got this particular instance and like, where is the problem happening? And I think it's very easy to default and just be like, well, it's cause I'm blind and it's cause I'm using assistive tech and this is inaccessible. And sometimes it's like, oh, actually no, I like, made a mistake here, but, but being able to tease apart those layers is like, that's some next level wizardry that I am just leveling up to. So that's one, that's one feeling. There's, there's a dozen more that I could share with you, but I'll leave it there at the moment. Well, yeah, it's a challenge because that 
oh, it's because I'm blind. You could have two approaches to that. You could either say it's because I'm blind and I'm just not hip to it the way I should be, or it's it's because I'm blind, isn't it? You've created bad uh-huh. tech for me. And right. so that's yes. super interesting too. Like which which negative trait of blindness are you going to apply <laughs> to this situation? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I really try to avoid that. Right. Like, you know, I think, cause I think that's just, that just, if I let myself go too far down that, like, oh, like they don't care about me cause I'm blind. You know, I think then I just turn into a very resentful and very closed person. And, you know, I think there's a place for resentment. There's a place for activism, but I tend to want to try to like solve the problem in a way that doesn't make the company hate me or doesn't make other people hate me. And then, you know, helps other people too. I've kind of done that too. And I actually, you mentioned Jonathan Mosen and that's interesting because he and I always get in these conversations that are surprising because it's not thoughts that either of us haven't had before. But when I talk to him, I always end up being able to crystallize that sort of line between this is bad design or bad engineering Mm. or whatever causes it. And, you know, the extent to which I as a blind person should be able to advocate for myself and make it better. And uh, so those are some of the conversations both on my show and on his a little bit too, uh, where I've sort of been able to think about that in ways that I don't always, sometimes it's just frustrating. And then sometimes it's like you say, you're, if you have the ear of the company, which I occasionally do, you want to find an approach to the developer that says, Hey, this is a thing that's going wrong. And can you help me with that? And then you have to decide how annoyed you're going to be when they don't uh, assist you in the way that you would wish or in the time frame that you would wish. Um, you know, I have good and bad stories, as we all do, I'm sure, as far as that sort of goes, dealing with uh, dealing with software vendors whose number one priority might not be accessibility, but who might have made some attempt at accessibility. And then the question is, well, how well did they succeed, especially if yeah. you're trying to be a power user, you know? Right, Totally. You learn Braille. Um, and for folks who don't know, there's some controversy in the blind community about whether Braille is a necessity. Some people believe that, especially with very robust audio access, that blind people don't need to learn Braille, especially if they became blind as an adult or for whatever reason got to adulthood without learning Braille. And there are other people who believe that Braille is about literacy for blind people. And and you decided to learn it. Why did you do that? And, and what's your take on this whole uh, dichotomy between between people who think braille is important and those who don't um i learned it because i am a real language nerd and a book nerd and i just the more i hung out with blind people especially like the blind people i thought were the coolest uh they were all braille readers and they were reading aloud you know and they're like like when jonathan not to like turn this into a jonathan mosen love fest but like you know when i hear him reading um, emails, listener emails off of his Braille display. I find that really inspiring, not inspiring in like a, in the bad way uh, of that word, but just like, damn, I want to do that. And, um, you know, I'm really scared about, you know, I, I mean, I really value my work in radio and I can still read large print off of a, you know, with the perfectly calibrated monitor with a, you know, white text on a black background and it's 26 point font blown up to 150%. I can still do it. But like those days are certainly numbered. And when I try to read aloud in Braille right now, I sound like a, a, a first grader, but you know, if I keep it up, I think I'll be able to get there or at least like read notes and then freestyle off the notes. Um, and that's just, you know, that's something I want to be able to do. And I know people who can do what my friend Leona Godin calls the Cyrano technique, where she's like hearing jaws in her ear and kind of like able to say the thing she's hearing and pull that off. And certainly 
that's, that's legitimate too. But, um, you know, so there's reading aloud, but there's also just like the experience of close reading. Like I talked to my friend, Robert Engelbretson, who's a linguist at Rice, who's, a, um, started to do more research into Braille uh, linguistics, you know, and just the, like hearing the way that he and, and, and like Chansey and other, uh, other Braille users talk about it you know, like for me as a writer and a reader and a critic, like the idea of close reading is really important, right? Like the idea that you're not just reading a book at, you know, 85% in voiceover and, you know, you can get the gist of it, but like, really, if I'm going to write about a book, I need to like stop at a sentence and maybe read that sentence five times and read it really slowly. And you can do that with a screen reader. But I find that when I read a sentence in Braille, it's closer to that visual experience of reading that I grew up with. Is there a big difference for you between reading Braille on paper and reading Braille on a Braille display? Uh, I have come to prefer reading on a Braille display because uh, I don't get lost as easily. You know, I think that's one trick about Braille is that like just the tracking um, uh, is tough and I can do it. I have a subscription, a free subscription to Poetry Magazine from the Library of Congress. Uh, they, if you ask them for it, they'll send you one. And it's great. It, um, and, and particularly with poetry, you know, then you can feel the, the, the white space on the page Absolutely. that is often very important for poetry. So that's a pleasurable experience. But like if I'm reading a novel, uh, it's just so much easier to read it on a, on a 40 cell Braille display. Well, that's what I was going to say, because I think you talk about an orbit display in, in the book. And I was wondering if you've you upgraded to a bigger display, because that's what I would want is at least 40 cells, if not 80 for that. For that for real, yeah, I got reading. the brilliant. I got a brilliant. Nice. Um, the uh, the 40 cell. Oh, so so just, this is just a sort of a, a radio, a reading nerd question for you. So you read the audio book of your book. Yes. Uh, yeah. How did you do that? Did you do it with print or Braille or what was your method? No, like I said, if I had done it with Braille, the penguin would have fired me <laughs> after the first five minutes because it would have sounded very bad. Um, just like halt, halting and like the person was, you know, like just that kind of style. Um, but like I said, uh, I, I cranked the, the, the font up. I found this, the Braille Institute in L.A., um, which is like a place like the lighthouse, like, you know, serving blind people. They had some money to develop this typeface called Atkinson hyper legible that yes. I found like the week before I had to do my audiobook, And I was like, Oh, let me check this out. And actually I found it really useful. It's like designed for low vision readers. And, um, so I, 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 I like, it actually took some effort. I like, I ended up OCRing my book. Cause like the, um, the version they sent me was a PDF, you know, and at that point, like the publisher had the final version that had all the corrections in it. And I couldn't really, basically I ended up like putting it into Kurzweil. Uh, this is like the only podcast I could ever tell the story. On <laughs> I love, this I love where this is going. This is great. Yeah. So like I actually OCR'd my own book, which just felt like totally <laughs> absurd. Um, and then I like reflowed it into um, Atkinson Hyperlegible, this typeface that's designed for low vision users. And then I like, cranked that up to like whatever, 24 point type with like those magnification zoomed in. And, um, I had it on my, I brought my laptop into the, the recording studio and I was like, okay, like I can basically see like half a sentence at a time on the screen. But like, if I do, I can read it. And if I'm just scrolling constantly, I'll be fine. And then like 30 seconds into the recording session, they were like, we can hear you scrolling. <laughs> um, so you can't, you have to like pause in between the scrolling. And I was like, but I can only see half the sentence. Like I can't pause. And they were like, no, you have to just do it. And then, so they would cut out the pauses. So it's really, I'm like once upon a scroll, scroll, scroll time, there was a scroll. And, but you know, I would, I would pause at like logical 
stopping points, like little commas often. And I just like those commas were like life vests for me that I would just like cling to and then leap to the next one. But I, I did it and people report that they've cut out all the pauses and it sounds okay. It, it sounds great. I, I hope you bought your editor a bottle of whiskey or a fine dinner or whatever they might like, because that's a lot of work. <laughs> and I, yeah. as a radio person myself, I feel you there. Oh I have, my, my method is I have an iPad with a teleprompter app because I have to read scripts into the radio microphone a lot of times. And so yeah. the nice thing about a teleprompter app is it will actually move at a pace that you choose for it, not faster, not mm. slower, and you can make the font whatever you want. And Atkinson Hyperlocal is in the uh, latest edition of iOS Access for All. So. Oh, if I was doing it today, I would definitely ask you for that app recommendation, <laughs> and I would do it that way instead. It's been a lifesaver. And the nice thing about the iPad is that screen can essentially float in midair if you've got a stand, mm. which I, I read very close, and so I want the screen like up in the air instead of down on a laptop level. So you write about privilege as as a blind person. Uh, you're you're male. You're white. You have some financial freedom. You have work, which, as as we point out so often, most blind people do not. And I, I guess I'm wondering uh, what it took for you to sort of incorporate your understanding of your own privilege as a blind person into your makeup. Did it sort of come naturally for you, or did you have any aha moments as far as that goes? You mean in terms of like like kind of talking about privilege in the book and and the the sort of class issues that right that come right up? because there are there are a fair number of class issues that are that are brought up by the fact that so few blind people have the opportunities for either higher education or for employment and it it does sort of create class divide and to be uh, you know quite honest like a lot of the people you talk to in your book are fairly eminent they're scholars they're yeah. scientists and so it's it's your own privilege as well as the opportunity to know some really you know, amazing people who also happen to be blind. Totally. Yeah, no, that, that's a really important question. Um, I remember when I was working on the book, I, I talked to Mike Hudson, who's the resident historian at the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville. And he said to me kind of a version of what you just said, like, you know, Andrew, you're talking to these like incredible blind people, but like, don't forget about the majority of blind people who don't have jobs at, you know, these big companies and, you know, like you should talk to the folks like working in the plant at, um, you know, at, uh, at the national braille press, you know, or, you know, like talk to folks who are, um, doing, you know, who re restocking vending machines or, um, who don't have work at all, you know, and are living on SSDI, you know, and I did talk to, to folks in those positions. And, you know, I think one reason why the book does end up feeling probably, imbalanced in terms of like the, the, you know, I don't want to pick on any of the people we've been talking about, but what, like the, the research, the scientists and the, the writers and the, and the sort of more privileged blind folks that I'm, that I'm writing about is because I felt a need to sort of offer myself as well as the reader, like an image of blindness that, that was like aspirational in some ways, you know? And, um, I didn't want the book to be a sort of portrait of blindness as, as struggle, um, even, even while I wanted to represent the, the struggle that blind people have. And so, you know, both realities are in the book, but, you know, I think because it is fundamentally a memoir, it is sort of about a privileged guy going blind, looking for ways to, you know, to put it cynically, like to extend my privilege, right? Like, how do I not become marginalized? Like, what do I have to do? Um, you know, but, but I think like, as I, as I kept writing, I really was conscious of the obligation I had to represent that 
the reality and not just say like, look, guys, blindness isn't so bad. Like all you got to do is buy a $4,000 Braille display <laughs> and uh, you're good to go. Right. Like, like, and so I do talk about the sort of this funny idea, or I just like this phrase, the blind 1% that, that right. I heard somebody say, um, which is real, you know, and I think it's not just about class either. Like, I think another thing that I encountered was this idea of the vanilla blind person, which is, you know, basically me, right? Like the, no, no other disabilities other than blindness, you know, and you're a white cisgendered heterosexual guy with economic privilege. And it's easy for somebody in that position, in my position to talk about blindness as like an incidental characteristic as you know, as the NFB might might say, right? And I think this is a criticism the NFB gets is like the the the, the image of blindness that is imagined in a lot of the philosophy doesn't account for multiple disabilities necessarily. Uh, yeah, I know you talk a lot about the NFB, and you went to one of their training centers. I don't get the impression that you've quote unquote chosen sides in that debate. Are you an NFB or or do you sort of try to stay above that fray between them and the ACB? Or what what are your thoughts on that? I, I, um, because I'm a journalist and because I want to continue reporting on disability, I am not a dues paying member, although I've certainly paid my dues in just like canes that I've bought over the years. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's really kind of just like a professional decision. Cause I feel like there would be a, a like an ethical, like journalistic ethical problem if I was like a dues paying member and then also trying to write about the, the Federation. Um, and I'm hard on the Federation in some ways, you know, like I talk about the real, it deeply ingrained, for example, the the homophobia of, of of people and just like social conservatism in general, that certainly doesn't align with 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 a lot of the values that I hold for myself personally. But you know, I try to be impartial and I try to be journalistic about it. I write about, for example, um, Laura Wolk, uh, you know, who was Amy Coney Barrett's um, student, and then testified on her behalf. At, you know, as staunch anti-abortion activist. Um, and was an NFB or, you know, and I think in the end, I tried to be really fair about, about everybody I wrote about and including the NFB. And, you know, there's talked about some of the, the actions of some of its members and leadership that I thought were problematic, but also talk about like the really foundational, crucial role they played in the history of blindness in the U S. And so, yeah, I'm not at all anti NFB. I'm also not a rank and file member. I think, I think they're fascinating. I mean, at, at heart, just as a writer, it's just like a fascinating story and, and group of people. I asked my question the way I did because I didn't want to give the impression that I felt like you were taking sides because I feel like, yes, you had a lot of interaction with sources and with people that you met through experiences that you had at the NFP, but I never at any point got any impression that you were, uh, you know, apologizing for their failings or any of that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it's, it's interesting to me because I have all been aware of that sort of rift between NFB and ACB as long as I've been around. And I, I've never joined either organization and I have friends in both, but I've never really thought about until reading your book, the degree to which social conservatism is kind of part of NFB culture more than I would have expected. I suspect because the NFB folks I know do not fit that profile. They are progressive yeah. folks and they are focused more on sort of, you know, how do we make our lives better from a technological or navigation point of view, and they're less invested in the sort of cult of personality that sometimes is associated with NFB, and also the sort of uh, really static way NFB tends to think about 
self-reliance and, you know, all of that stuff about, you know, not creating special accommodations, but rather getting, you know, learning to use your skills to uh, live in the world. Um, and I never really thought about that as social conservatism, but the more I, I read what you were writing, I sort of understood that perspective a little bit. Yeah. And they've evolved over the years too. I mean, I think that's the other thing that is important to emphasize while we're talking about the way I represent them and myself in the book is that, you know, it is, it's, it's an evolution. It's a history. And I think I took a lot of risks, you know, in talking about, for example, my really raw feelings. The first time I went to an NFB chapter meeting when I was living in Missouri and felt super alienated. And, you know, we showed up late, my wife and I, and, um, the sighted folks who were there didn't, you know, understandably, they didn't interrupt to say like, oh, two more people just showed up. And so like none of the blind folks knew we were there as far as we knew. And then my wife was uncomfortable. So we kind of like left right away after the the sort of formal part of the talk was over. And, you know, in the book, I present that scene as like a really strong experience of alienation, you know, and in, and in hindsight, like I think Gary Wonder was there. I think that guy's brilliant. Like, of course, there were people there who um, I could have learned a lot from, but it felt important to me to to talk about it, even though it did present this NFB chapter meeting as this sort of like very, you know, exotic scene from like the sighted coastal elite version of myself that, that was visiting it. But, but, you know, since, since, since the book has come out, I've heard from like rank and file NFB folks who have lived in the rural South. And they're like, I'm glad you talked about that because that was my first experience of a chapter meeting. And you know what? And I had to go on a journey before I realized like, oh, right. Like these people are really knowledgeable, you know? So I think that like, I took a lot of risks in presenting my own kind of internalized ableism throughout the book. And I'm grateful to readers for kind of like hanging with me through the journey to, so that by the end you realize like, oh, okay, yeah, like he's not looking at blind people that way. He's not looking at himself that way. But I think it's important also for sighted readers I've heard like to not, to not feel like right out of the gate. I'm like, here is how you should feel about blindness. And that I could sort of present this more work in progress experience of my journey. And also I do this, you know, in the way that I write it, but other people, including the NFB as like a work in progress that I think there's a lot of good faith effort happening among folks there to pull out of some of those older, uh, ingrained attitudes and stances. But to me, that that makes me trust you as a writer. And I probably would have had the exact same experience that you describe in that Missouri section. That seemed familiar to me. Uh, <laughs> and, and and it sort of brings up a question, too. I've, I've been blind since I was a child. And so I have somewhat different experiences in terms of the way I encounter new blind people. There is this thing among some blind people, and I'm absolutely including myself, and you don't have to include yourself, but you can if you want to, where you're looking for the cool people. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, this person is blind. That doesn't necessarily mean I have something in common. I don't want to be a snob, but at the same time, I'm looking for my people. I'm looking for the people I can talk to about whatever it is I talk about, whether it's literature or history or tech or current events or whatever. And I'm, I'm wondering what your journey was like and sort of finding your people and, and, and you obviously you talked you met a lot of people in the journey of this book and probably outside the journey of this book. Yeah, no, that I feel like I'm right there with you in that. And, and I don't think there's any shame in that. You know, I think, I think if you're going to like be the president of the NFB, then you have to have this sort of like big tent attitude of like every blind person is a part of this movement and I cherish them. But I think if you're just like a blind person trying to figure out how to live your life as a blind person, which I think like ultimately is what I'm doing in the book and in my life. Right. I'm just like, okay, I had my life. Now it's being radically altered by this acquired disability. What does that mean for me as a person? Like I should be allowed to be like, all right, well, 
there's probably other people who share this experience, but I only want to talk to the cool ones, right? Because <laughs> like they're going to be the ones who, uh, just like everybody else who's my friend, right? Like they're the, going to be the people who I get value from. I have interesting conversations with. Not to say that they have to all like look like me or sound like me or have the same experiences, but like if you just look at the humans that humans like to hang out with, they tend to have some things in common beyond just like the disabilities they have. So I think that makes a lot of sense just like on a interpersonal level. So uh, let me ask you a, a final question. As I, as I mentioned, you quote a lot of people, you do a lot of research, you report a lot for this book. And I frankly learned about so many resources, books and the like that I didn't know existed, whether there be memoirs or scholarly discussions of blindness and disability. I wonder if, if there are a few that you can recommend to readers after they read your book, of course, hmm. uh, that, that they might enjoy. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the first name that comes to mind is Georgina Klieg. Um, her book, Sight Unseen, is her first book. Uh, that really just opened a lot of doors for me in thinking about um, the kind of philosophical and artistic and creative potential of blindness that like blindness is not just a thing that is sad or that, you know, happened to Helen Keller and Stevie wonder. And like, there's nothing interesting to think about it. Like she really presents blindness as this rich field to be mined and plumbed and explored, you know, in its intersections with art and literature and cinema. Uh, and then she has a second book or, uh, she has a bunch of books, but um, her most recent book is called more than meets the eye, what blindness brings to art, which kind of extends a lot of the stuff in the first book about art. And if she like goes really deep into audio description and museum access and blind artists, blind photographers. And I just think she's like the best blind writer around. Uh, I've learned so much from her writing. Um, so yeah, I would, I would offer that one to start just like all of her books. Great. I will, I will certainly, certainly link to those as well as to your book, The Country of the Blind, which uh, if I haven't made it clear so far, I, I really enjoyed and, uh, and got a lot from. I would encourage people to read it, especially folks who may not think, I want to read a, do I want to read a memoir from a blind guy? Read it because if there's a lot of tech and a lot of history in there, a lot of stuff. As I say, I, I learned something and I fancy myself reasonably knowledgeable in this world. So, so Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for the kind words about the book. It means a lot. Uh, and I'm, um, yeah, I'm so happy to talk to you and, and keep listening to your show because I think, you know, like you said about what you're trying to do with it, you know, I think that's, that's what I'm trying to do too, is like find some interesting parallel here that's parallel, but not separate necessarily. Like, like how, wh what are the ideas about blindness and disability that intersect with things that everybody in the world cares about? And so I'm, I'm grateful to you for your work too. Thanks. Find show notes for Parallel, go to relay.fm slash Parallel. You can also subscribe to the show in any podcatcher you like. You can send us email feedback, or you can find links to Mastodon and that other platform. I think they call it by a single letter, but I'll just call it Twitter. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye now.